Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Blog Talk Radio. Lou, how are you today? Good, good. Uh, I'm surviving the uh, uh, the no, the non-snowstorm uh, snowstorm. And by the way, this is Manufacturing Talk Radio, um, uh, running on Blog Talk Radio. Um, so we did survive the. Uh, uh, the sh- the uh, snowstorm. We were supposed to have 20 to 30 inches. We wound up with six to eight. We had a shutdown of the uh, all the bridges, the tunnels, the subways, and the buses in New York City. Uh, it looked like the day after New Year's Eve, uh, from what I saw on television. So we're doing okay. How you doing, Tim? Good. Fortunately, I'm down here in Atlanta with much milder weather, so it's a, a little easier for us. We're we're actually waiting to get our first snowstorm because it's an unusual occurrence, even with uh, climate change, I guess as they call it these days. So well, we haven't gotten that yet, but we'll we'll wait patiently. And uh, in the meantime, uh, I'd like everybody to know that we're still struggling with the LA ports. Uh, Lou, you've got the latest update. What's going on with our lovely ports in uh, Los Angeles? Nothing. (laughs) There is nothing going on. Uh, The latest this morning, uh, I heard that uh, there are 16 ships anchored off of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Uh, It seems as though that they are uh, having uh, negotiations, and I think the headline was... uh, that we've had made some major strides in reaching a tentative agreement. It has something to do with uh, fixing um, uh, the chassis for the trucks. Uh, however, the topics that they haven't touched on yet is uh, health care, unresolved wages, pension, work rules, jurisdiction, you know, all those minor things that uh, are holding up uh, our port. Um, this has been going on for uh, nine months, and uh, it doesn't seem as though that the federal uh, mediator has any weight whatsoever. He must be a um, Obama man. Um, nothing's going on. Uh, I, I know that uh, most of the public doesn't really know anything about it. I did hear that uh, uh, Sears uh on on the radio the other day they were talking about the fact that they are running out of inventory must have something to do with their imports um and uh, Walt, uh Walmart also is having similar problems uh also only the largest uh, uh retailer in the United States doesn't have inventory uh, so I don't know why the news media has chosen not to pick up on this. It may have something to do with taking instructions from the, the big White House in Washington, but I won't be too cynical about it. Uh, the uh, the other, uh, of course, is the no snow, no snow snowstorm that we had uh, yesterday uh, here in New York that shut down almost everything. Uh, actually, I came to the studio this morning in spite of the uh, state of emergency on the highways. New Jersey highways were foreboding. Uh, I and I was one of the only cars, plus two police cars and a tow truck uh, that I saw. Um, but the show must go on, so here we are. Tim? <laughs> well, we'll be touching a little bit on global supply chains today because we have the pleasure of Having Cliff Waldman back on the show, Cliff is the Director of Economic Studies at the Maypi Foundation. That's the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. And he has an interesting uh, uh, take on Made in the USA, so we'll be chatting with Cliff. Cliff, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Great, great. Cliff, uh, Made in the USA, that recently appeared on Maypi.net. And you and I had a discussion about it, and I wanted to invite you back on the show. But it said, made in the USA, question mark. Can you explain that to our listeners? 
Well, first of all, it's my pleasure to be back. Thank you for inviting me once again. Second of all, um, made in the USA is a is a, a paradigm that you know repeats itself every so often, particularly at times of economic stress. And I wrote the blog and, and the blog title in that fashion with a question mark because I wanted to make a distinction about, about how things have changed over time. In the 1980s, as I said in the blog, competition, global competition, was a very emotional topic for the American people. The, Japanese, or the strength of the Japanese automakers was considered an affront to an important industry for the United States, and it was, it was sort of seen as being something that uh, was challenging our economic hegemony, our economic way of life. These days, there seems to be less of that. Uh, you would think that if that um, emotion carried over, then the American public would be very worried about China and India, but I think you see less of it, and that's because I think there is a growing awareness of the true nature of global integration, particularly in the wake of the 2008 crisis, where we understand that strength in one area of the world can matter to, to strength in other areas of the world. So we have a little bit more of a collaborative view of, of, of economic activity uh, and, and of, of the fact that the U.S. is not an island and can't be an island in an increasingly integrated global economy. Well, I would absolutely agree with you there, yes. Uh, it is a global economy, and I think the U.S. should uh, choose to be a leader in it. I think we have in many ways. Of course, the L.A. port situation isn't helping global supply chains any. Uh, Cliff, when you're talking about uh, this subject, one of the things that comes up is, in fact, global supply chains. What's the impact? Well, global supply chains are sort of the mechanism through which, you know, um, a truly global manufacturing sector is taking place. Um, more and more, um, the world is dividing um, its it, it goods production efficiently. We know that the industrialized, advanced nations are not going to make commoditized products. They're going to go to labor-intensive um, areas where they just simply make more sense. On the other end, um, innovation is going to go to where innovation ecosystems are developed. But for the advanced products, the, the high-tech or high R&D machines that uh, the, uh, the advanced economies, including the United States, make, we know that certain countries have comparative advantages in certain parts of uh, the supply chain. So you'll very often find that one product, particularly one complex or one motor, one new technology, can often be produced across a myriad uh, of countries. And that means that the thinking on the, the impact of that is that the, uh, the national thinking on what competition means um, has to change dramatically. We don't think of it as a head-to-head -head, um, fight of one country versus the other, but uh, the effort of one country to maximize its, its place in the emerging world of global supply chains. And you've made the, the point of it's not us versus them, it's us and them, which I think is a well, good point. It, 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 Yes, there's a little subtlety I want to surround, surround there. I mean, we do have to worry about, in order to maximize our place in global supply chains, we do have to worry about competitiveness. We do have to worry about the fact that we still have a trade deficit, which means we're not selling enough exports. We do have to worry about um, – we do have to rejoice in some good things are happening with our, our, our labor costs corrected for productivity being internationally competitive, our energy situation being um, uh, you know, much better, much more uh, uh, competitive. But, again, the, the, the object – so we have to play the competition game, but the object of the game is not so much to, um, to – you know, for the U.S. auto industry to beat the, the Japanese auto industry, as was the case in the 1980s, but to get our slice, our, uh, our, our max, maximize our interest within the context of a world of growing, of, uh, growing global supply chains. Well, you make a good point about uh, Japan. You know, I, I hearken back to the movie uh, Back to the Future when uh, Marty McFly goes back to the 1950s and meets Doc Brown, and uh, one of the parts fails, and, he, and Doc Brown says, well, no wonder it failed. It's made in Japan. And Marty says, what are you talking about? All the great stuff is made in Japan. <laughs> uh, did, 
Did Japan overcome Made in Japan by delivering top quality cars and electronics to the U.S.? Well, it it did what it it it, it did what it did very well. I mean, Japan um, Japan succeeded um, at the time at the times it was successful by focusing on its own particular genius, which first of all is process innovation. And really, they taught the world about uh, the nature of, of process efficiency and process innovation. Uh, I think they made a number of mistakes. They uh, they ignored the the long term consequences of a bursting bubble, and I think even longer term than that, they failed to see you know the the rise of Asia as as a um, uh, a labor intensive uh, huge region of the world with uh, potentially tremendous implications. But yes, I, I think Japan. At, when it succeeded, it did what it did very well. It focused on it, its own knitting, which is process innovation, um, but it, it was short-sighted in other ways, and it's, it's still working to overcome that. Oh, it clearly is. Japan is really struggling as an economy. Uh, when you talk about global supply chains, and I know that we're talking about parts, components, and labor. Um, what's, who's going to be the leader, China or India? Well, I don't know that you're nece- as things evolve. I don't know that you're necessarily going to have a leader. I think you're going to have it, it, it's a team kind of thing, and who, who's going to do what is the better question mark. But let, let, me, let me sort of bring up one you know tangential issue, issue that's actually more than just tangential to that. As global supply chains evolve, uh, global, you know supply chain efficiency, time to market, that kind of things becomes all the more important for all countries who are participating in these global supply chains. And that brings in the the growing importance of these disruptive technologies that you hear about almost every day. 3D printing, for example, is one. And I think for the United States, which has innovated so many of these technologies, I mean, 3D printing, you know, the the experiments for 3D printing began in the United States in 1960. One of the things we are going to have to do to maximize our, our place in this new world of glo- growing global supply chain is that we're going to have to sort of not give away the store on the economic value of our own disruptive innovations. We've gained some value from innovating 3D, but we want to keep, um, you know, there'll be upgrades, there'll be 3D 2.0, 3.0. We don't want to give away uh, that that sort of thing. So in this growing world of global supply chain innovations, we have to realize how it's motivating manufacturing to change, how that in turn motivated technological innovations. And since the U.S. has done so much good work in that area, for us as a policy, I think I would like to see not just so much a policy but a strategy for us to keep the value of the, the new technologies which are really feeding and facilitating the stresses and the, the, the requirements of living in a global supply chain world. Uh, going back a, a point, uh, Cliff, um, about uh, made in USA, um, the Buy American Act, uh, which goes back uh, a number of years, uh, actually wound up t- ticking off a lot of our friends and our allies, particularly in Europe, where uh, it, the, the us versus them, clearly it would, the Buy American Act is um, us and forget about them. Uh, NATO uh, got uh, all bent out of shape uh, over the issue, and they said, you know, we're friends, you know. How about us? Why aren't we participating uh, in these issues, uh, uh, government contracts, and and so on and so forth? So the, the the altered the Buy American Act to also include uh, the NATO nations. Uh, so now Buy American means Buy in America, Germany, England, France, Italy, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, so the buy buy uh, American has been kind of clouded uh, due to international political issues, um, and that's that's been going on now for a number of years. Um, and now they have the DFARS laws, which says that you can produce overseas, uh, call it American made, as long as. Sixty percent of content is American. Well, then you right. start having a cloudy issue about what's sixty percent. Sixty percent material, sixty percent labor. Um, it becomes a very cloudy issue. And uh, yes, it does. 
And I think it's becoming more of uh, us and them instead of us versus them, which is your point. I think that's correct, yes. I, I don't, you know, I don't want to comment on the uh, the politics of all that because they are difficult international politics. But the the cloudiness, you know, speaks to the uh, speaks to the issue in, in in physical and economic terms. You know, there a lot of uh, American jo- you know imports are on, have been of goods have been normally thought as being sort of an affront to the uh, to manufacturing stability. And certainly, we want to export more. We do need to work on exporting more. But imports um, often have large American content. They're, 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 it, for some, in some industries, imports are tied to um, American jobs. So, yes, yes, all of that, well, well again, I won't uh, uh, comment on the international politics of, of that fight. Uh, I will say that the, um, the, the, the structure of the argument speaks to the structure of, of evolving global supply networks. Uh, Cliff, is there anything, you know, we're talking really to the manufacturers out in America and, and around the globe who are listening to the show, but also to the American consumer or, or other consumers, but on this topic, is there anything that the American consumer should be concerned about, or are these products so integrated and tested these days that, you know, made in America is the label, but what's underlying that is really a well uh, built consumer product or, or well, industrial I, product? I'm, I'm going to give you a slightly different answer than perhaps is often given on that. You know, okay. uh, another thing that we want to think about in terms of maximizing our own strength in this, in this uh, different and evolving integrated world is that, you know, we want to see more entrepreneurship. We want to say entrepreneurship has been weak in the United States for uh, 15, 20 years now, and it's been you know weak concomitantly in the manufacturing sector. We, you know, uh, fortunately for a while, uh, manufacturing uh, plant starts startups were were falling. Fortunately, they have leveled off. So we see you know you know another good point that perhaps we're seeing a little bit more um, uh, of us sort of uh, reaching a, a little bit more of our potential in the manufacturing um, integrated world. But we clearly need, both in manufacturing and non-manufacturing, more business startups. It's been a weakness that's you know, well, dated, well predated the, the Great Recession, and it's one of the reasons we had a weak labor market recovery. And you know, if we're worried about the future of our manufacturing sector, we need more manufacturing startups. So you know, I, I'm seeing efforts in, in the news lately, for example, to get teenagers more I- interested in entrepreneurship. I, I think that's a great idea. I think the, the American consumer, the American public has to think about, hey, you know, that's one route for me to get ahead and for us to get ahead. So we, we need more business startups. That, that will make a difference in our, our strength and our, 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 you know, our place in this growing global team that I'm talking about. Well, Cliff, about uh, uh, new startups and uh, entrepreneurship, it, it might help if we had some help and incentives from uh, Washington, my, my new favorite target, uh, for them to assist and aid uh, and also looking to the banking industry to divest some of the uh, billions that they're making into uh, small loans to uh, small startups and help uh, in creating what you're talking about. But nobody's really doing that, and you don't hear anything about it. Sure. Support of that kind is important. I I, I agree with you that we need more of it. But I, I think there's a kind of an interesting complexity that is growing both out of the economics thinking and out of, of the efforts that are going on in the states. The states are in, uh, you know, important policy arenas. We can't, we have to pay close att- as close attention to what's going on in key states, in fact, in all states, uh, as we are in Washington. And one of the things that is, is states are efforting to do in certain parts of the country is to create something called clusters. Which you know, regional. We think of a national economy, uh, but it's really a, made up of many regional economies, which have different um, advantages, different strengths, different weaknesses, and a, a cluster is either naturally evolving or evolving by policy fiat, and it's an effort to sort of leverage the strength of that region. And then once you do that, I mean, you know, I'd like to see advanced manufacturing clusters sort of grow into um, into key regions where they are. 
not. And then, you know, the states can work together. And then uh, then you see how the parts fit in into each other much more easily in regions than you do in states. I, I, I'm sorry, than you do in the national economy. Uh, you'll see how workforce development fits in with entrepreneurship, fits in with, you know, uh, a strategic use of 3D and other new technologies. So I think one, one of the things that we ha- it's been demonstrated – to help entrepreneurship is to create regional, strong regional clusters, and that almost automatically um, helps business startups because then it makes sense to start a business in a region where there's other businesses, where there's you know support, quasi-governmental support, governmental support, um, technological um, infrastructure. So I, I think I agree with you about um, the banking industry and about uh, the federal government, but the states. In, have to create, you know, leverage the strengths of their re- the peculiar strengths of their regional economy, economies, and in doing so, we know that will help um, entrepreneurship development and business startup activity. The only thing that I've seen in terms of state involvement at, at any kind of level of developing uh, business, uh, take for example the state of New York. Uh, they started a program of stealing industries from one state to another. Um, New York State uh, went on this program this past year, and they brought in uh, 33 major corporations to move to the state of New York. And they're giving them tax incentives, uh, I should say tax gifts, no taxes for 20 years and so on. But I I haven't personally seen uh, what you're talking about. Uh, So if, in fact, that's happening, I'd like to see where that, you know, for the the understanding of our listeners, where are these uh, clusters and or incubators uh, developing? Well, one interesting one, and I'll I'll speak from experience, Uh, I I did a – a, a paper on um, the development of an advanced manufacturing cluster in the South. The South is promising, uh, perhaps, if they make some changes, for Southeast, that is, for, um, for the development of an advanced manufacturing cluster, and they are beginning to talk about it quite seriously. So we might see something there. We know Silicon Valley. I mean, Silicon Valley is the ultimate cluster. We know the research triangle. You know, it, 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 we need to see more of it. Um, we see some clustering activity in, in a little bit of New Jersey and San Diego. Yes, I, I mean, it needs to get off the ground. But um, I, I think there is, a, there are, you know, having re- been a researcher for um, – a, 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 you know, supporting a discussion of advanced manufacturing clusters in the South. I, I, you know, I know the states are beginning to realize it. And, and what cl- clusters are are exactly not what you just said. They're not tax incentives that you know pirate capital from one state to another. They're cooperative efforts to use the the, uh, the strengths of one state, the strengths of another state, to create a. Um, a in effect, a, a, a different entity that leverages, um, you know, the strengths of each 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 of its components. There is some activity, and there is at least some discussion uh, along these lines. And I, I think it's going to go forward. I think it, I think you will see more of it. Uh, Cliff, why don't we take a quick commercial break here, and we'll be back in just a few moments with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Okay. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. All Metals and Forge Group manufactures open die forging in blocks, hubs, shafts, flanges, cylinders, gear blanks, and custom forge shapes, including seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, nickel alloys, copper and titanium for parts and assemblies in aerospace, oil and gas exploration, defense, machinery, transportation, shipbuilding, energy and power, pulp and paper, and many other industries. Visit steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Before we continue with uh, Cliff, I, I did want to mention uh, last week's show, which I normally do at the beginning of our show, uh, for our listeners who didn't listen last week, um, we were talking about wacky labels in regards to manufacturers and about frivolous lawsuits and class action suits. And uh, we had uh, a gentleman uh, on the show, uh, Bob 
uh, Jerio Jones, right? Rico Jones, rather humorous fellow, and introduced some really wacky stories about wacky labels. Um, I think it would be interesting for you folks uh, to get a little bit of a chuckle, and uh, it is about manufacturing, but it's from a very odd point. So listen to our show last week, and uh, Tim, let's deal with today's show. Uh, We're back with uh, Cliff Waldman, and Cliff, I wanted to bring up to you this reshoring discussion. We have had several people on the show talking about reshoring um, and that this job seemed to be coming back to America. I'm recently uh, reading where that uh, may or may not be the case. The, the bigger question is, as we reach this global supply chain equilibrium, is reshoring that big a deal? Well, I think you have to put it in its proper context. I, I, I think it depends on whether you're looking at it from a national point of view or from a local point of view. From a national point of view, probably not in the sense that, yes, we, we probably are bringing some jobs back, um, and you hear some high-level uh, announcements of it from large corporations. But we're probably also, you know, you have to look at net flows. We're probably also sending some jobs um, away as, as, as you know, goods production becomes efficiently distributed over time throughout the global economy. However, if you are a community that depends on that plant, and, and you know, the economic development uh, benefits of uh, a factory are well established in the economics literature, but if you're a community, uh, you know, uh, or, you know uh, or even a city, it, it's a heck of a big deal. So I, I think the answer to that depends on, on the perspective. Nationally, in, in a dynamic global economy for a large country like the United States, probably not. We have coming, we have going. For a small community, for a city even, big deal. So it's perspective matters here. In regards to what Tim was talking about, uh, reshoring, uh, tell us a little bit, uh, if this falls into your uh, expertise, about nearshoring, uh, namely Mexico. A lot of I hear a lot of things going on down there. Well, Mexico is is uh, you know is, is a place of great promise and great turmoil. Uh, we have an excellent Latin American consultant, Fernando Sedano, who uh, certainly has more detailed knowledge than I do of it. But uh, I know uh, Mexico is a place of great interest for obvious reasons. It fits very well uh, in terms of proximity and logistics. It's got a, uh, a workforce which has a good reputation. It also has some, some real, very serious challenges. Um, the drug cartels, violence, uh, which you know you think you think is solved one week and and then isn't the next week. So the, those are, are big issues for inward direct investment. Um, it, it it it's you know ties to NAFTA and its its auto um, uh, industry and the fact that it exports you know to the U.S. Uh, and some to Canada. So I would say Mexico is a great area of turmoil, but you have to be aware of both the benefit of you know the strengths and and, and the risks and the socio and the sociological the socioeconomic uh, problems down there. So Mexico, U.S. manufacturers are not going to stop stop going to Mexico, but uh, I, I think an awareness of where it is and where it isn't uh, matters. Uh, Cliff, back in October, you were uh, writing about durables and were talking about uh, you know global supply chains and made in the USA. Uh, have durables gained some strength over the last 90 days? I'm sorry, has what? Have durable goods gained some strength over the last 90 days? I know. Well, I mean, listen. I, I wrote a, um, a commentary on the durable goods, uh, you know, uh, orders this morning. No, they, in fact, they weakened. We had a, a weak, a very disturbing durable goods report uh, this morning. They give you the latest data for December, and they give you a few months back. And we are seeing weakness in durable goods, and particularly, it, it is one component of the report. It's uh, you know, orders for um, non-defense. Um, Capital goods, excluding aircraft, which are so large that they, they move the number around considerably, that's taken as a proxy for business equipment spending, and that that's that's you know that's what you want to gauge, you know how business investment, and we're we're seeing that as being weak. It's been down for three months, so you know that's been a salient feature of the post 2009 rebound. Is just and really the post 2000 world is weak business investment. So now I, I don't see durable strengthening. In fact, it, it was a, the fourth quarter was a particularly weak one for durable goods demand. 
So when we're talking about, uh, you know, the recovery of manufacturing in, in the United States, and we're really seeing that in the in the smaller plant operations, the uh, uh, 100 to 400 employee plant operations, uh, is that it seems to me that may be the only place that this investment is taking place. Is is that consistent with what you're? Uh, what you're well, I, I, it, it's hard to break the, the data down, you know, to that level of granularity. Uh, you know, manufacturing. Uh, came, you know, when we the economy hit bottom in 2009, manufacturing came out of the gate faster than. Um, the, the economy as a whole, because, I mean, uh, emerging markets at that time had a, a faster rebound, and also we had a very sharp inventory turn, which benefits factories. But then manufacturing started getting pulled into the problems of the world. And, and while we've, we've had very volatile manufacturing growth, it's strong one quarter, not strong another. I, I think there's probably moderate growth, uh, the moderate, you know, abstracting from all the, <clears throat> the ups and downs, there's probably mod- there's moderate growth in manufacturing, but with well, somewhat of a downside risk because the problems of the world, you know, can't help but impinge upon manufacturing growth in the U.S. And I think we saw that in the Durable Goods report this morning. Business decision makers are, are, you know, are facing, uh, you know, certainly a better U.S. economy, but they're also facing great, you know, uh, great weakness in the world economy, which matters to them. And in particular, that's been translating into turmoil in a, in a lot of key markets, oil, equities, currencies. And, you know, that, 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 uh, that has a negative impact on the confidence of business decision makers to invest and, that, you know, and, and expand and buy capital equipment. And that, that, that showed up pretty clearly in, in this morning's durable report. It was not, this has not been uh, a, a good two or three months for durable's demand. I now, think, spoke, uh, uh, go ahead, Lou. Uh, I was just going to comment on the uh, oil and gas uh, sector. Uh, you know, it's great to have a dollar seventy-five uh, uh, gas at the pump, uh, but uh, forty, fifty dollars a barrel um, is is not necessarily good for uh, uh, manufacturing, and certainly not good for the oil and gas industry. Um, and that uh, we we now have a glut, a, a an oil glut, and. Uh, I heard several major corporations uh, last week laying off thousands of people from the oil and gas uh, industry because uh, the price of oil per barrel is not high enough for them to uh, cover costs, no less uh, make a profit. Uh, This could be a a major deterrent uh, here in the U.S. uh, economy. Well, you know, it's, 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 interesting, it's interesting how markets sort of reveal things. You know, at first, when, when oil started falling, it was a bit of a head-scratcher because, I mean, lower oil prices sh- should and I think eventually will have great benefits. It is um, lower prices at the pump. It does give the consumer more, uh, you know, um, more money to spend in other places and therefore juice the economy. Remember, it's, the economy is still 70% consumer. So we were wondering why, when oil was falling, was the stock market taking it as such a negative? And we have to realize that you know one one consequence of the very very good uh, energy supply expansion, the very positive energy supply expansion, is that when oil prices go the other way, they matter more to the economy. Now these days, now falling oil is a good thing, but oil falling as fast as it was, first of all, when you see any market falling as fast as it was, you worry about stability. It's not so much that lower prices are bad. They're not. But when it falls, it's the rate of change of the downward increase that makes you worry about a kind of a general sense of stability, particularly in these post-2008 years. And also, you have to remember that a lot of banks um, were invested in this, this energy supply expansion. And that, you know, that creates fears of financial stability. I think some of this is, is correct. I think some of this is still the kind of jitters that, you know, we still, the residual jitters that we've had from the 2008-2009 um, recession, you know, the financial break that precipitated that. I think eventually oil will find its, its point, uh, will stabilize, and we'll, we'll see oil prices as being a generally positive, a general positive for the, um, the U.S. economy and other economies. It'll be a, a general positive for the Eurozone economy. But right now, 
the it, the rate of decline has been so speedy that we're worried about stability and we're worried about financial issues. And you know the fact that other commodities are are joining the oil fall for certain uh, for certain countries and for certain companies. Um, that's that's pressure. You, you know you know it was interesting to see Canada actually lower interest rates because of the oil decline. Well, when's the last time we ever, ever saw that? Oil prices are falling, and a, and a major central bank lowers interest rates. Well, you have to remember, Canada is a commodities exporter. So, you know, if this is putting a lot of pressure on its already somewhat weak economy. The, 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 the Canadian economy recently has been helped a little bit by, um, you know, at least moderate manufacturing, U.S. manufacturing growth. But um, it depends a lot on commodities, so it's, it's been kind of a rough time. I think this will all find the bottom will all find an equilibrium, but you have to remember the calculus of energy in, in terms of its role in the U.S. economy and therefore its role in the U.S. stock market um, has changed, has changed fairly dramatically, and markets are showing that to us. So, Cliff, here, here's the, uh, the gotcha question. Where should oil price be that makes everybody happy? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's gotten as low as – you have to remember something. Spot markets are wonderful things in that they create transparency. Um, you know, Nobody can say, hey, I, I, I'm going to sell you a barrel of oil for $100 or sell you a barrel of oil for $2 because the spot market kind of disciplines um, commercial activity. But you also have to remember that spot markets are – partially financial markets in the sense that they – and that means that they tend to move around just for emotional reasons because of political events of the day. So there's part rationality in, in the pricing of oil and part irrationality. Now, you know, at one point the oil got as low as $10. I doubt it's going to get that low these days, although if, if the, the fears about the globe continue, it might. I, I don't think that's an equilibrium price. I, I'm going to take a guess of you know thirty to forty dollars is probably where the bottom you know in the thirties because we saw that we've seen that fairly recently. Uh, I think in the thirties is probably where it is, and and then once you know the world equilibrates and stabilizes, um, I, I think it'll probably build a little up from from the thirties. That's my guess. I'm not happy. I'd like to see about sixty seventy dollars. <laughs> Because <laughs> the more oil they pump, the more forgings they buy, and that's our primary business. <laughs> right. <laughs> I understand. Now, Cliff, at the, at the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation, are you predominantly dealing with uh, uh, the big OEMs, or are you also dealing with the, the small and mid-sized enterprises? Uh, we we have a, a nice mixture of the large of some larger companies, uh, companies in the uh, you know mid-sized one to five billion dollar range. We have a few uh, smaller ones. I, I would say we have a pretty good size distribution, which I enjoy because it gives you a you know it gives you a somewhat smaller company perspective. It gives you um, you know the large behemoth. Uh, perspective that you really sort of can learn something about the you know the true mechanisms of global supply chain. So uh, the answer is both. We have a pretty good, uh, a pretty wide distribution. And do you see the small and mid-sized enterprises being more involved in sourcing goods from overseas, or is it really the behemoths that are involved? I know in everybody. This? I, I, you know, again, and now sourcing is a specific expertise. Um, our, our chief economist, Dan Maxroth, runs our purchasing council, so he has it a, a lot better than I do. But I, I, I don't think there's any distinction there. But, uh, you know, again, Dr. Maxroth runs our purchasing group, and, and he has for many years now, and, and he, uh, he has a more specific knowledge of, of sourcing than I do. Okay. Now, this article that you uh, found interesting and provocative in the Wall Street Journal about Made in the USA, those two reporters were talking about Made in the USA, you know, moving slowly back to that production status, and and you're really taking a counterpoint to that. Um, where do you see this all in 20 years? Does it, you know, it used to be, gee, my competitor is in Iowa and I'm in Wisconsin. Now our competitor may be halfway around the globe. Uh, but does this all hit a point of equilibrium sometime out in the future? Well, I, I think yes and no. I, I think um, in terms of distribution, it will. I think, but remember, you know, uh, other interesting things are happening. We 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 may see the rise of Africa. Who knows what Cuba is is mm -hmm. going to do now that you know it seems to, to be a, a a different day for it. Uh, 
nonetheless, I think the answer is yes, but you have to remember that along with this, this evolution of the distribution of manufacturing around the world vis-a-vis these integrated global supply chains, I'll, I'll come back to an earlier point and say that ma- the nature of what manufacturing is, what it can do, is changing so dramatically with um, the, you know, these disruptive innovations, with 3D printing, with smart manufacturing, with digital technology. So the nature of the manufacturing enterprise is going to play into the answer to your question, and, and frankly, it makes it all the more unpredictable. Now, you had just uh, done or are doing a paper on 3D printing. Is that correct? Yes, I, I'm working on a, an article on 3D printing. Correct. Uh, is there anything in there, Cliff, because it's one of my curiosity questions, what the impact of 3D printing is going to be on uh, manual labor? Uh, well, it, it depends on, on the industry. I don't think it's going to have huge impacts on manual labor, at least for a long time. Right now, it, 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 it's really a design mechanism. It, it's for prototyping, for trying new things. It can have production impacts. I, I'm finding more, you know, just in informal dis, you know, discussions at MAPI events that more and more people are moving it into um, uh, production. I, I think, for example, um, in aerospace, it, it might be, uh, become you know, a, a, a producer of uh, airplane parts uh, o- over time. Uh, you know, that technology is, is hitting the world in interesting ways, but it too is going to change. It's going to upgrade, you know. It, it, you know, just like software um, uh, doesn't stand still, 3D printing will not stand still um, either. So I, I don't think initially it's going to have huge impacts on manual labor, but I do think over time you're going to see, you know, um, the nature of, of what manufacturing does, where, where you know, you can build part. It's going to shorten supply chains. You can build, you can produce parts closer to the source. You can work with your customers on designing new products because 3D printing makes that a much faster, more efficient. You know, R&D will become more integrated into the global, uh, into the supply chain as, as opposed to being, you know, a kind of back office light bulb function because you can show the immediate impacts of new design changes with, with 3D printing. No impact, I don't think, not huge impacts at least uh, on labor, but it, that could be coming down the line in, in, in certain industries, certain industries. Now, you and I talked uh, prior to the show about a week ago about uh, the U.S. selling off or a company really selling off its technology. And I liken back to uh, the VCR, which we created in the U.S., and then we sold right. to Philips in the Netherlands, and then they did quite well with it. Uh, uh, 3D printing is one that runs that risk. Um, how great a risk do you think that is, or are we learning from past mistakes? Well, I, I don't know whether we're learning from past mistakes. I, I think we have to realize that, listen, we innovated 3D printing here. It's began, the, the initial experiments began um, in the 1960s. And, you know, the U.S. has, been, has, has a proud record of disruptive innovation. But, you know, we have to make sure that we keep the economic value of, of the, the upgrades, of the, cha- of the less dramatic things, the upgrades, the changes. Now, it, are we learning from that? I don't know. But I will comment that, once again, a cluster, uh, if, if clusters take off in the states as competitive um, tools, uh, and, and, you know, I, I think it will help because then – Everything fits into the uh, into a piece of the cluster, including new technologies. If we do that, if we leverage regional economies and put 3D printing into their proper place in different regional economies, that will help us to maintain the, the ongoing value of these new technologies. So I, I think it, the jury is still out on whether we've learned the lesson or not. I'm not sure. I hope we have. Okay. And in terms of these clusters that you have mentioned several times in today's show, um, how do you see those working? And do you have examples of those working? To me, it seems disjointed, although we've talked to people from universities who'd like to be involved, and uh, we've heard from uh, state associations that like to, would like to be involved, but we don't see what you, for instance, see in China. They have whole cities that are devoted to yeah. one thing and another city that's devoted to something else. How do we get that kind of thing actually going in the U.S.? Well, we have to we have to have cooperation among states. I mean, and that, you know, the states are the the subunits for economic activity, and we have to have strong state relationships. Then we have to recognize 
what this you know for for any given region what the strength and and weakness of each state is and okay so our you know Alabama doesn't have a strong workforce but it does have uh, cheap land prices and uh, Georgia does have a uh, a strong workforce but it doesn't have enough ro- it doesn't have enough of this okay how can Alabama and Georgia sort of combine to to create you know where they use the workforce strength of of one but the land uh, price strength of the other there's no one formula for it but the it, the common sense notion of using it uh, of recognizing it advantages and disadvantages of states within a region and cooperating to, to capitalize on all that is the beginning of, of a cluster. And again, the, the, if you want to pick a picture of one in your mind, the ultimate cluster is Silicon Valley. I mean, that's, that's the, you know, the cluster of clusters in the research triangle also in some ways. Um, it's just it, the beginning of it to make it happen. States have to recognize the value of it, and they have to have strong relationship with with each other, and then careful planning to say, you know, to leverage the particular um, strengths of each state and recognize the uh, the weaknesses of each state in the region, and then use them effectively. And do you see this being led by the states, or do you see it being led by industry, I, or what? I, I see it being led by the states with some initial investment from the federal government. Hmm. I, I, that, that's, that's the ultimate. It should be led and, and efforted by the states with perhaps an, an investment uh, from the federal government. Okay, and does that give us uh, some renewed strength for Made in the USA because these are really innovation clusters that we're trying to develop? Well, yes, it, it, it can. Uh, it, it means that, uh, you know, uh, we want to, for example, Cube, the Cube opening, which I just put out a paper on, it should be on the Maypi website either now or, or soon, that creates that creates an opportunity. I mean, Cuba is a country of 11 million people. It's not a small market for a certain industries. And I think the Southeast cluster uh, if if the, the one evolves, can make itself peculiarly competitive to uh, take advantage of the of the Cuba opening for for new markets for new demand. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the southeast because I am in the southeast and I'm seeing yes. a lot of things here that are evolving that people would not have expected. For instance, there are something like 15 sound stages already built in the Atlanta area, another 15 under construction, and another 20 planned. That's almost yes, more that are in Los Angeles. So uh, Atlanta is becoming the new Hollywood. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I expect to see uh, more of that in uh, industry because uh, the governor of Georgia is very aggressive about uh, attracting people to Georgia. BMW is now moving their headquarters here. Uh, but yep. those are all individual but not integrated efforts. Indeed. Additionally, uh, the aerospace industry, uh, talking about California, is also um, beginning to trek their way east and south. Uh, they're moving into uh, Mexico. Uh, they're moving into uh, Georgia and South Carolina and, uh, and Georgia. Um, it, it, and now with the port issue happening in uh, uh, California, it's going to come to a point where – the last one leaving L.A. is going to have to turn the lights out uh, <laughs> because there there is a lot of industry. And we did look into this uh, several months ago uh, about uh, material uh, supply chain in regards to the southeast. Uh, about ma- uh, metal manufacturing uh, is growing also in the southwest to support uh, metalworking and metalworking industry, namely uh, aerospace. So this is uh, just another sign of uh, clustering uh, in in a whole region. I, right, I think right, the no. capability of doing it. I think I think if the states begin to realize it, if, if uh, the governors begin to realize even the, the political benefits of it, uh, I think we are well positioned to do it. I mean, listen, this is the largest, most diverse economy in the world. If ever there's an economy that can benefit from efficient and, and well-thought-out clustering, it's us. We just, we just have to want to do it. The capability is there, and the opportunities um, are, are there. 
to um, it's it's just a matter of, of people understanding the concept. And I, I I can tell you, they are beginning having done research for them. They are beginning to think very seriously about it in the southeast. Well, Cliff, you brought up Cuba, and Cuba has always been a fascination of mine. We've uh, responded more slowly to Cuba than I thought in terms of normalizing relations. But now that that's beginning to come together, what are the opportunities for manufacturing in Cuba? Can we move uh, some manufacturing activities uh, off to Cuba and import for there? We only have to go 90 miles. Well, Cuba is uh, Cuba has, very, in its long journey ahead, um, has, has very definite strengths, very definite weaknesses. It, um, it has an educated population, but it also has a rapidly aging population. Um, in terms of manufacturing, it needs to get its macroeconomic fundamentals a little stronger for manufacturing. It, it, investment as a share, you know, capital investment as a share of GDP is, is too weak. Ten, ten, a little over 10 percent. That is too weak for a developing economy uh, who, that wants to build a, a, a manufacturing sector. But even there, there are some pockets of light even in manufacturing. Cuba has a strong pharmaceutical industry, a strong biotech industry, um, and that shows that that could be a, a you know a touching point uh, in that it shows the, their capacity to innovate. So I mean, if they can innovate in one area, they can innovate in another. But they have to they have to start by getting the macro fundamentals right, and they need a program for immigration and family planning because while they they have done a good job. Of investing in education and and you know keeping enrollment and attainment high, it has it has one of the highest attainment rates of, of education years in in Latin America and the Caribbean. It, it really really needs to um, to get stronger investment and, and it really needs an immigration policy because it, it's aging much faster than Latin America and the Caribbean, and that's a problem for workforce and for the household demand that you need for a, you know a healthy goods demand. It's got strengths. It's got it's got weaknesses. I think I don't think many people realize that it has a strong pharmaceuticals industry. If they did that, they could do other things in manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Economically, economically, they're going to have to. You know, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do they build businesses and industries so that people don't want to leave, or and not only leave but have people come back, uh, and uh, therefore. It, Improving the uh, the workforce age uh, issue, uh, so this is something that uh, they really need to look at in terms of again, which came first, the chicken or the egg. True. Well, one of the things, another thing that they have done on, a, on the positive side along those lines is that they have um, a healthy entrepreneurial sector. I don't think a lot of people realize that. that their business startup activity has has greatly improved since since roughly 2008 when. You know, Raul Castro came to the presidency. That could be, you know, um, if if they really build on that, that could be incentives for, you know, pulling in uh, an immigrant population that may see in this new day the possibilities of their own business. So, you know, that that could be, you know, uh, leverage to uh, to help with the population situation. Now, Cliff, you have mentioned uh, aging populations in a couple of countries around the world, ours being one of them where we have a concern, but you also mentioned uh, Germany. So what are the issues with aging population as we look around the world in this made-in-the-USA and global supply chains that some countries are not planning for? Yes, no, but listen, the industrialized world, the U.S. right now is in a pretty good position because while our fertility rate is right on the line in terms of population replacement, which is 2.1, uh, we are benefiting from a strong immigration policy. Now, uh, you know, every country cannot have a strong immigration policy. Um, the, the country, some, some will, but uh, some need to sort of uh, make up for, uh, you know, for uh, a, a, a weak population demographic profile with productivity, with, with technology. I mean, a lot of the reasons some of these, these new labor-saving technologies come, come along is because they're responses to the challenges of, of demographic difficulties. Most of the population growth in the world is coming from the lower- and middle-income countries. So uh, thus, thus, 
global supply chains because if if the industrialized world you know isn't quite in, in the long term position to provide the labor force for certain things, certainly the the developing world, which has a different demographic profile. Is so you know the answer is yes uh, you know Germany the United States the United Kingdom they need family planning they need immigration policies they need a lot of things but all the more reason it gets it back to the, the beginning of of our discussion to say okay even with that an advanced country is going to have demographic challenges but you know uh, emerging demo, uh, countries are not. Africa has a terrific demographic profile. Gee, maybe I ought to think about uh, what Africa can do for my supply chain. So, you know, you, you need to both, in, in terms of dealing with the demographic challenge that is, you know, sweeping the industrialized world, they have to sort of think both inward and outward. Well, let's talk about Africa for a moment because that's come up in a couple of our shows. We have had on an economist that said that Africa really is uh, uh, kind of ripe for the picking because that. A lot of Africa was uh, governed by the British for so many years. They speak English. They're well-educated. It seems to be a younger population set. Uh, How is Africa developing? Because I don't think a lot of people are looking at that. Well, Africa, Africa, the sun is beginning to rise over Africa. It is still a small part of the global economy. You know, in terms of percentages, you're not dealing with something large, but you may be dealing with something that is emerging. Um, it, it, the second fastest growing region in, in the world. Um, it, it, civil wars it have, have calmed down. It, listen, it still has many, many problems. We see terrorism there. We see Ebola there. Let, let's not kid ourselves. But it, you know, it, it's in a better position for growth, and as a result, it's had much stronger growth. Uh, there's in certain spotty areas, we're starting to see the strong growth uh, morph into greater manufacturing activity. There's evidence of manufacturing activity really rising, for example, in Africa's largest country, which is Nigeria. So there are hints that Africa is starting to emerge, in, in both in terms of economic growth and if not widely dispersed manufacturing growth, then, in that, then interesting manufacturing growth in certain um, countries of, of Africa. So, you know, it's a young population, speaking of demographics. It's well-positioned. There's a port kind of um, area, uh, particularly South Africa. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, global manufacturers should take a look at it. They find it interesting. It's an emerging population there in, that is getting into, in spite of the, the, the well-known many challenges, that is getting in, into, uh, you know, some interesting markets that, that could evolve for them. Uh, Cliff, on the Made in the USA issue, kind of as a wrap-up as we hit the end of the show here, and we appreciate you being our guest, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners on that topic? I think we have, everybody has to think global, whether you are you know, a small mom-and-pop business or working for a, a, a multinational Leviathan, you have to think global. The world matters to you. Even if you're just, even if you're, you only have a market, let's say in one or two countries, Mexico, Canada, or just within the United States. Even if your markets are only in the United States, global issues matter to you. So that that's my final word. Everybody in any business, small or large, domestic or local, or domestic or um, international, everybody's got to think global. And you cannot shut the world out of your business thinking. Thanks, Cliff. We really appreciate you being a guest on the show. Uh, uh, My pleasure. Lou, I'm sorry, you have another comment there? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, Cliff, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. It's uh, uh, always uh, interesting and uh, insightful. Uh, and we will have this show rebroadcast uh, in about an hour and a half, uh, maybe two hours, on our website at mfgtalkradio.com. Um, and uh, Chris, uh, if you would give us uh, your your uh, address, I'd appreciate that for our listeners. Cliff, my my, my email address. Uh, no, your uh, website address. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it's uh, www.mapi.net. Okay, thank you. M a p i dot net. Great site. A lot of great resources. M a p i dot net. Okay. Uh, well, thank I think you it was a pleasure being with you. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll have you again on, I'm sure. Uh, Tim? Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Well, bye-bye, Cliff. And that, that wraps us up for Manufacturing Talk Radio today. 
We have certainly enjoyed having uh, Cliff Waldman uh, being our guest. By the way, you can follow us on Twitter at MFG Talk Radio, and we tweet frequently about what's happening on the show, either upcoming guests and shows or what just happened on the show. And we will be both rebroadcasting the show, and it's always available as a podcast at mfgtalkradio.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back with you again next week. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.